Shabbat Shalom and welcome to Shabbat Shalom. Uh, here in LA, we're a little more laid back, a little more easygoing. We have no filters and we certainly can't control our podcast host. So this has been your obscenity warning. And with that, we would like to introduce Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. Hello, Los Angeles. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast, at least according to Apple. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. And tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Do you know what that sound we just heard is? What was that? That was the universe telling us to move to this beautiful city. Where a polar vortex is 53 degrees. There's a courtyard at the synagogue, and it's like balmy out there. We were saying, we were walking through when we arrived, and I said, wait a second, where have we seen this courtyard, this synagogue architecture before? And we remembered, it was the the temple in West Palm Beach, Florida, where they also built a synagogue around a courtyard with palm trees and people, you know, wearing lays and things like that. It's like, it's the sort of... It's how you build synagogues when you're happy. (laughs) That's I think that's right. We all got on the plane to New York, and it was actually zero degrees. And we have we have had a sixty degree bump in our in our moods. We are live tonight at Congregation Adat Shalom in West Los Angeles. Yay! With three very special guests, we are excited to welcome Persian Jewish social entrepreneur Rachel Sumac. Actress, writer, and producer Lauren Miller Rogan. And veteran TV writer and now executive producer of the show Blackish, Jonathan Groff. It's so hard, you know, it's hard enough to get a Gentile, and then when you get one, they have a Jewish sounding name. It's like, then you get Jonathan Groff, and he's the Gentile of the week. It's like you just can't, you can't win. But is he? Yeah, we may have some surprises. We have some surprises, right? Uh, we're Don't going laugh, very- that, this happens very frequently. We're so proud because we think we know a Gentile, and then we, we go on air and be like, what? Yeah. They're like, actually, my mother's mother is Jewish. (laughs) Like, you are not a Gentile. And you want to blame the producers, but they've done their homework. Like, they have found people who've actually, like, you know, had first communion and whose last name is O'Brien. And and then you put those people on a Jewish podcast and they start opening up and you discover that, in fact, they are one-eighth Jewish and it's their mother's mother's mother. they're, like, speaking Yiddish by the end. (laughs) But, but, yeah, but that's exactly what Stephanie said. Like, there's always this, like, little bit of insecurity. Well, I don't know if it counts, but my mother and her mother and her mother are Jewish. And I was bar mitzvahed and spent two years in the yeshiva. And you were, does that count? Does that count? I think it is. Yeah, so we, we don't know any Gentiles is the takeaway. Basically. So excited to be here uh, in, in Los Angeles. I don't see these guys as much as I would like to. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what's... And we didn't fly in together. Usually we fly in together. But Stephanie, what's up since I last saw you? Well, what's up is that I'm sitting in the most comfortable chair I've ever sat in. <laughs> and I have the best posture. We're, like, in real temple. These are, like, temple chairs. It's like when, you, when you're board president, you get to sit during yeah. the holidays behind yes. the art. Like, exactly. It's- <laughs> The good chairs. I feel like I never want to get up. So it's also like very plush. I like this place. We're more righteous already. Definitely. How was your flight in? My flight in was good. Um, I watched some classic films that I had never seen before. Ghostbusters. (laughs) I love that Ghostbusters counts as classic cinema for you. (laughs) And Goodfellas. (laughs) 
which was great because I feel like I've been, I, I, you, you may have heard me at our last live show talking about how I started watching The Sopranos. And so watching Goodfellas, I feel like I understand The Sopranos. Like I get why, I, like Dr. Melfi, I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's funny because she was also in that. And like Christopher's in it. I feel like I'm really like clued into It's a whole new world yeah. that's opening up to you. <laughs> whole new mob cinema world. Because I'm only on season two of The Sopranos. Don't tell me what happens. I thought you weren't gonna stick with it. You decided to stick with it. It's weirdly soothing to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it feels so pre-Trump, right? It's like sure things were bad, yeah. but you know. Yeah. Um, so that was your airplane experience, was watching classic movies. My airplane experience, and this is a thousand percent true, and it's going to be documented on Instagram after Shabbat because I have photos. And he knows what Instagram is. And I've heard what Instagram is. I have Instagram minions who are going to put it on Instagram for me. Is that um, I was on the flight this morning, the 7 a.m. Delta flight from, from JFK, and about 10.30 uh, L.A. time. So we had almost landed. Like, we were, we were about to land. Um, my last chance to get up, go to the bathroom. I get up, standing outside the bathroom, waiting in line, and I see, a, a, you know, an ultra-Orthodox guy. Looks like a Hasidic guy, and he's putting on tefillin. And thinking that I'm going to, like, play my Jew card, right? I'm going to be like, like, I'm down with the Jews. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a leading Jewish podcaster. Um, <laughs> I decided to strike up a conversation with him, and I said... I'm down with the Jews. It's such a soothing thing such for a Jew to hear. Yeah. Some of my best friends. <laughs> That's right. So I said to him, I, you know, it's about, again, 10-ish in the morning, the light's, you know, up. And, and I said, oh, you didn't, you didn't dub in Shachrit in New York? And he said, and he turns to me and says, well, actually, he's putting on the tefillin, and he stops, and he says, well, actually, I didn't have time there, but it's not yet afternoon here, and halachically, I can still do it, whatever. And then he says to me, and I should have seen this coming, he says, by the way... Have you put on tefillin today? <laughs> and you have nowhere to run. You can't say like, oh, I'm really busy, and then walk right. down the street, because <laughs> you're in C30J, like right. you're stuck. So it's like, you know, it shows how deep into the Jewish world I am that I didn't figure he was Chabad. He could have been Breslover. He could have been non-Hasidic yeshivish. He could have been a pupov. Like he could have been, he could have been any kind of, but of course he's Chabad. He's a Lubavitcher. So I have nowhere to run. So initially I was like, no, 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 I'm good. I'm good, man. I'm good. But then I thought, wait a second. There's literally 20 rows of, and it's one of the big jumbo jets. So there's three, four, and three. So there's 300 people watching us. As this guy says to me, will you put on tefillin? And I thought, I've got to represent. So he wraps me up in tefillin, and his wife, who's like 20, they just got married three months ago, is taking pictures, and she's... And then we... So I put on the tefillin, and then he says to me... And then we start chatting, and I said, what's... He says, what's your name? I said, it's Mark. I said, what's yours? He says, Yossi. I said, I could have guessed that. And I said, what's your last name? Because I like making friends. And he says, Raboshkin. And I go, wait a second. I was like, I know that name. And I looked at him and I said, I know that name. I said, is your father some sort of famous Rav or something? Is he a great Hasidic master? Is he? And he says, no, my father was the first person pardoned by President Trump. <laughs> and he, he just owns it. He leans right in. I said, oh, the kosher slaughtering guy, the, the tax evasion. He said, yep, that's my dad. <laughs> Postville, Iowa, agri-processors, that's his father. And we start talking. Anyway, long story short, the punchline is also his wife grew up on my street in Springfield, Massachusetts. But that's just, that's like the least interesting thing about this story. So, Liel, how you, can you top that, Liel? I can't, but I can tell you that there, there are a few things that I love more than putting tefillin on planes. It feels to me like, you know how in, in Wait, You Disneyland, actually wrap the tefillin 
on the plane it's or so, putting you on to fill in well, when you're on an airplane? That would be a real yeah. artistic thing. But, like, when you put on to fill in on a plane, you know how in Disneyland you could pay, like, another $100 for, like, skip the line pass? Like, you get straight to the top? Like, I feel that way, too. Like, God, like, I'm here. I'm closer to you than all those, you know, schlubs down on Earth. Like, come on. Like, I could say a little special something something today. I feel like you are, like, BSing about how religious you are. But, like, I don't I believe you put the fill on an airplane. swear to God. I did don't it, believe it. I did it five days ago. I and like not how- only that, en, en route to the Holy Land. Wow. So that Which comes double. Extra point. Double have, plus in oh, yeah. space. Yeah. Did so. you have the minion in the back by the bathrooms? Did you have, did you have some people to rap with? Or? I did. Uh, but I don't think they really accepted me. I sort of stood like to the, to the back and to the right because uh-huh. they uh-huh. kind of look at me like, You're, you don't have a hat. <laughs> your, your beard's like, you know, an inch and a half shorter. I like how real you just got with him there because Liel has been on a kind of journey toward more observance in the three yeah. and a half years we've been doing this podcast. And you just kind of... Calling him out. You called him out. Like, yeah. Well, I was the one at the front of the services earlier who the rabbi had to say, no, we're t- we turn this way for this portion. <laughs> <laughs> so I am, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open. I'm transparent about my, <laughs> my observance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we take all kinds. News of the Jews. Leo, what's the update on Jerusalem's stray cats? Well, some of you who've been listening to this podcast for a while uh, would recall that we spoke about something that we... Um, fondly called the Meowschwitz, which was a plan by the Israeli government to indeed catch and destroy all feral cats in Israel, of whom there are, you know, six million. Um, and uh, you'll be happy to hear that we've reversed course, and now Jerusalem has decided officially to invest uh, $25,000 in buying cat food for the cats. Um, how much cat food does $25,000 buy? I don't know. A lot. Uh, but hopefully a lot. By the way, 100,000 shekels sounds so much better than $25,000. Totally true. I was like, 100 <laughs> shekels of cat food? <laughs> cat food for days. It's like, here is uh, falafel. You eat. I'm very, it's delicious. I'm really, like, this is one of my favorite ongoing storylines of our News of the Jews. The cats. The cats in yeah. Israel. And not just because it gives Liel a chance to make his Meowschwitz pun. No, I feel very, very it just, yeah. It's everything we love. My favorite story um, lately in the New York Times was about Michael Cohen. He's trying to get into Otisville in New York. It's the Jewish prison. And it was like the greatest article that like kind of veered into anti-Semitism a little <laughs> bit. But you're like, no, tell me more about this Jewish prison. So I'm just going to read you a quote from it. So it says, there are kosher vending machines in the visiting room. The prison commissary sells skull caps for $6 and offers a kosher selection that includes matzah, gefilte fish, rugula, and seltzer. Do you know how to pronounce rugula? And here's a quote from a former inmate. Hey, it's not Zabar's, and it's a little overpriced, but what do you want? It's prison. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to go to Otisville to see this Jewish prison. And the, that, that quote was from an inmate whose name is Lawrence Stressler, and he was hyperlinked in the article, so I like hovered my mouse, and it linked to LarryNoodles.com. So I clicked, and, and Larry Noodles, which is what Lawrence Dressler was known, was like that was his name in Otisville, he blogs about Jews in prison. And I cannot stop reading Larry Noodles' blog. Which, by the way, you It know, is so crazy, but the craziest thing that I learned from Larry Noodles' blog is that the two most recent like, arrivals at Otisville are Billy McFarland, the fire festival guy, and, and the situation from Jersey Shore. <laughs> 
Whose so like, mother's mother's mother is actually Jewish. So like they're really <laughs> diversifying the place, and I'm happy for them. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a little upset. I mean, I share your enthusiasm. For uh, Larry Noodles. For Larry Noodles. <laughs> but I'm a little bit upset, like, until we get, like, a badass Jewish prisoner, like, his nickname had to be Larry Noodles. Well, it was like Larry Kugel didn't have right, the same like, rank. This is Kevin Kugel. <laughs> Don't mess with him. He'll ship you with a matzah. Like, that's just, that's just wrong. You know, I'll serve time in Otisville is Shalom Raboshkin, the agro-processors <laughs> guy. They all go to Otisville. Yeah, I read about him, actually, on the blog. So Sid, my wife, she read this article. She sent it to me, and she said, you see this article in the Times about the Jewish prison? It's kind of anti-Semitic, don't you think? And then all I, and I read it, and my only thought was, I can't believe I got scooped on this. Like, how did I not know about Otisville? How did we not do how a live show? How have we not done a segment there? Yeah, on Ot- we got to do L- a live like, show. Like Johnny Cash. Ex- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> live from Otisville. That's right. So back in Israel, Liel, Rabbi Yuval Ovadia did something that is made for Liel Leibowitz on News of the Jews. He had, he had very troubling news for me this week. He, he went on YouTube. Who uh, is this? this? Is, Just a random this person? Is a, this is a somewhat known Israeli rabbi uh, to warn us all that the planet Nibiru will soon crash into Earth unless all Jews immediately move to Israel. Um, you may ask what the planet Nibiru is. You may feel a little bit relieved to know that it technically doesn't exist. Uh, but the other part of the logic, I don't mind so much the fact that the planet doesn't exist in as much that the solution to this, you know, supposed, you know, cataclysm is for all Jews to move to Israel. Like how in, in the disaster movie that is this, right, the Ben <laughs> Affleck movie that is this scenario, like what is the moment in which like, someone rushes into the command center and says, sir, the only solution is to get all the Jews to like argue <laughs> in one place and their energy will divert planets. Like what is... <laughs> My initial thought was like, oh, so they'll get all the Jews to Israel and then it's going to like, what, hit America? Like, what is, like, what is the logic? They get all the Jews to Israel and then they put a, a huge Eruv around planet Earth. And the like planet Earth just goes to the left. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our first Jewish guest this week is Rachel Sumek. She is the founder and CEO of Swipe Out Hunger, the leading nonprofit in addressing hunger on college campuses. Her work has been recognized by the Obama White House of blessed memory, the New York Times, and landed her on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Rachel, tell us a little bit about Swipe Out Hunger and how it began. I, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I feel like the most perfect example of what Swipe Out Hunger is happened about a week ago when a student from a school in Denver, Madeline, 
heard the ad about me being on the show and looked up Swipe Out Hunger. She's a student at a school in Colorado and filled out a form to start a chapter at her school because of an ad. So I'm hoping that by the end of this podcast, we're going to have hundreds of students from across the country reach out. We're going to end college student hunger because of this, uh, which is our mission. Swipe Out Hunger aims to address hunger amongst college students by allowing students to donate the extra money from their meal plans to other students on campus. And for those of you rolling your eyes of how are college students going hungry or has anyone told them about ramen noodles, it's actually a really big problem in the US. About one in three college students regularly skips meals. It's the same student that from kindergarten through 12th grade got free breakfast and lunch at school. In New York, it's about 75% of students, around 70% of students in LA. Those are their primary meals of the day. And with all these supportive programs helping them get to college, no one is asking where are their meal's coming from now. Can I just ask, by the way, is, is this to you a Jewish project somehow? It's the most Jewish thing I do every day. And I'm on the board of my synagogue. And still, <laughs> this is the most Jewish thing I do every day. Um, because I remember I walked into my Hillel as a 19-year-old, and I was doing one of the internships, and we had to come up with a Jewish project. And the person who was the program director at the time, Jason, said, why don't you just take the swipe out hunger thing that you're doing and make that your project? I'm like, yeah, but it's not Jewish. He's like, no, no, it's Jewish. And so in that moment, it was like 2011, 2010, when Judaism realized that it can attract millennials if you start to talk about social justice and Judaism at the same time. But it's absolutely me putting my values into place of making sure if there are resources how can we make sure that everyone has access to them? It's a very, com- I think like Jews are pretty commonsensical. We say things that make sense, and it made sense that if I have money in my meal plan, if there are amazing dining halls on campus, and if there are people who are walking past this dining hall every day who are struggling to eat, that we should connect the dots. So this it's makes charity me- and feeding people. How, how much more Jewish <laughs> exactly. can it get? This makes me sad because I remember we always, you had to have like a certain amount of food points. Um, and I was in. I'm going to my 10-year college reunion, so it was like vaguely I remember this. Um, At the end of the semester, you always had like tons of food points, and we used to go to the hotel that whose rest had like a fancy restaurant and they would t- they accepted food points because it was like a Duke affiliated um, uh, uh, it was called the Waduke and we'd all like splurge on these crazy meals like, and I'm thinking how insane martinis. how insane <laughs> is it that we were just being such idiots and actually yeah. what we could do now is donate those to people in need the student who reached out to us from Duke said I saw my friend buy a bottle of Dom Perignon with his meal points and that's when I knew I needed to do something yeah that was me <laughs> <laughs> I bought that <laughs> How did the idea come, I mean, and how do you connect the dots? How do you, who, who, there must be so many pieces technologically, software-wise, like what? Yeah, I love telling the founding story because you'll see me on stage and I have, and you'll think that I was like some genius Mother Teresa. It was my friend who posted a Facebook status, Brian, and he's like, who wants to do this thing with our meal points? And I knew how to use Photoshop. So I said, I'll help you make the flyers and I'll show up to help volunteer. And I showed up and no one else did. And so he and I started this thing together and were able to organize our campus. And it's a very simple idea. If you have extra meal points, you should be able to donate them. And the basic logistics are we coach universities, their dining services and their social services to talk to each other. And once we help them talk to each other, it becomes fairly easy and they realize it's a worthwhile investment in their student retention and academic outcomes. Uh, our model is very decentralized. We have some of our team in the room today. Uh, and we, if you need a Gentile of the week, we finally hired a Gentile. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> 
Um, and our model is based on students similar to myself going and organizing their campus because we are built off of a new model of nonprofit. We believe that local leaders are the best qualified to build sustainable programs and to identify changes that need to happen on the spot. So when a campus wants to get involved, we only happen if a student and administrator take the lead on the program. So you are a daughter of the proud Los Angeles Persian Jewish community. I'm Uh, pumping my fists in the air, yes. (laughs) Listening to podcasts like ours, and in general sort of being in in the American Jewish uh, world a little bit, do you feel things are insufferably, to use a favorite word, ashkenormative? You know, I've been thinking about this. I've, I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm, when Stephanie and I met a year ago, and just before we met, I listened to like 10 episodes in a row and have continued to listen since. And but you said to me, your podcast is extremely Ashkenormative. <laughs> <laughs> and what I've realized is that my experience isn't necessarily one that is or is not Ashkenormative. I mean, from the moment I stepped into my Hillel, I had to learn how to speak Ashkenazi. And then I did Avodah, where I spent a year doing direct service, living in a house with 15 other Ashken- 15 Ashkenazis. And I had to learn how to cook and speak and everything Yiddish and Ashkenazi. Um, and what it did was actually cement my own identity as the only person in the home who spoke to my mom in a different language. So what I really became clear on is that it's not necessarily that I'm not Ashkenazi. It's that I'm a first-generation Jew in America. And what does it mean to be... Judaism is always evolving. I think Jewish identity, we each continue to evolve and own it in our own way. And then what does it mean to be a first-generation Jew doing that? Um, And so I feel like the greatest gift I can give to the Jewish community is to show up in the establishments, the Hillels, the federations, and be myself because for them to exist, they need to adapt to the needs of today's Jews. And I think first-generation Jews have more needs than second- or third-generation Jews. Um, and and I, it's a service to say, let me tell you about my community. Because if you claim to represent all Jews, let me, let me have a seat at the table. So, okay. So as one of the most Ashkenazi, like actually when we sent off my, the DNA, like, kit and everything and it came back I thought I'd be like you know I'd have two, I'd be two percent Viking one percent Neanderthal hundred percent Ashkenazi like I got nothing else you're all you had to do is send a photo of that bow tie and they would have been like yeah <laughs> I have to say I'm 97.1 and I'm like one percent North African so Ooh. pretty proud of that I got no, nothing else. No flavor in there at all. Just all Ashkenazi, right? It's like Eastern Europe. Just that's like, you. It's, it's Joe Ashkenazi, right? Like, tell me, and I didn't know any Persians till I got to college. I mean, at all. I barely knew any Jews, but I certainly didn't know any Persian Jews. Um, what are some stereotypes that are false that people have of Persian Jews? And what are some that are, like, true? Like, when you're with other Persians and you see someone, you're like, that person's Persian. <laughs> um, I'll give some stories as examples. Okay. So... Uh, two or three years ago, the Jewish Journal, the preeminent newspaper in the Jewish community of LA, put me on their cover and called me one of their mensches of the year. It's a beautiful photo, and the title of the article that they wrote, which the article outlines all the amazing service work that I do, the title of the article was Not a Typical Persian Girl. <gasps> and <laughs> Dang. Also, they called you a mensch, which oh you were my. like, and they called me a mensch. And so the, the response from my end was, to write an op-ed, which the Jewish Journal immediately published, and the title of the op-ed was The Norm, Not the Exception. And it spoke on how many of my friends, I have a group of Persian Jewish women, there's 10 of us, it, we have an acronym, PWITI, Persian Women in Tech and Innovation, 
And there's this, a bunch of Persian Jewish women who are doing badass things. And the narrative needs to be updated, right? Because now we're starting to move away from college because some of the, some of the stereotypes are true, right? It took my family many years to realize that what I do, I've been running Swipe Out Hunger for full time for the past five and a half years. Only recently did people realize that that is a paid job. They're like, anything that's service, anything that's not real estate or law or medicine, you must be doing for volunteer work because there's no other reputable career path. So there is absolutely that pressure. I would be remiss to not mention, I was at a Jewish conference two weeks ago and I did not mention that I'm, I mentioned that I'm Persian Jewish. I mentioned that I run a nonprofit. I didn't mention that I'm 27 and single. So like there is a lot of those pressures that Do you want to mention it now? I, I, would, li I would like to mention that okay. for those of you listening who can't see, I'm 5'10 before you send me your grandson. Um, <laughs> And so the, the pressures are real, right? The, the, the intense, for us, dating outside of the faith, dating outside of the community, intermarriage is dating an Ashkenazi, right? We don't have intermarriage, it's not a problem. Um, and so there is a lot of those stereotypes that we are very exclusive, that we put pressure on our, our youth. And I want to say that we're starting to change that because here I am, a Persian Jewish leader who doesn't have a traditional job, who is living in Silver Lake and is like trying to change that narrative. And it is changing. When I actually, I first met you, a friend had said, you have to meet Rachel. She's amazing. Um, I actually recorded an interview with you. I said something like, oh, you know, all L.A. Persians are, um, and I was like, oh, L.A. Jews, it's just such a wealthy community. You must have just, you know, had a very, I, I sort of made a lot of judgments and about the life you had. And you told me something that was very surprising. Yeah, I, I, I would say the, the doing this work of working to end hunger as a Jew, you might assume is just I have good values. But we have become so separated from the story of the immigrant Jew moving to the U.S. And our families, when, when our families moved here from the U.S., had nothing, right? Like, I was that kid in kindergarten who had the little yellow free lunch ticket, like, clamped in my hand, like, with shame, so no one would see. And it was that and other forms of public assistance that gave my parents a peace of mind to go out and achieve the American dream that they were able to achieve. And so the work that I do is, again, very common sense. We're helping students have access to a meal so that they can go and take that placement test. They can go and take the final and succeed academically and get a degree and, and get a job and have their whole family's lives changed. So it's not something I'm doing just because it's separate. It's very personal and it, I, I've seen it firsthand. Rachel Somak, thank you so much. Before we let you go, how can people find out more about Swipe Out Hunger? You can visit swipehunger.org or check us out on Instagram at swipeouthunger. If you're a student who wants to get involved, you can fill out an interest form. Or if you're an alumni of a campus and you want to ask what your alumni association is doing about this, or if you want to help feed students, go on swipeouthunger.org, make a donation, and help us end hunger. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest is Lauren Miller-Rogan. She's an actor, screenwriter, and director whose most recent film is Like Father, starring Kristen Bell and Kelsey Grammer, available on Netflix. It is great. You should watch it. Um, she is also in charge of Hilarity for Charity, which puts on variety shows to raise money for Alzheimer awareness and research. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We all very much, we were just talking earlier, we all very much loved Like Father. Uh, but it strikes us that it's it's kind of um, a departure from a lot of comedy today. It's really kind of an astonishingly earnest film that's very open about its emotional, you know, commitments. W- was this something that you kind of, was this like a, a, a line in the sand for you? Like, I'm going to make a comedy that will show you guys how, like, a heartfelt comedy needs to feel? No, I don't think, I did not set out to do that originally, no. Although I wanted to have, you know, sort of these real elements to it that felt a little bit more organic and, and more dramatic just because the situation, I thought, I don't want to make fun of someone getting left at the altar because that's, <laughs> I can't imagine that's terrible. And so, um, so it was important to me to to portray that in in a real way but honestly like it was something that I kind of didn't realize that I had done that and I was like sitting in the editing room and and I kind of was like oh I've made this movie that is really funny but really sad and not to like take this down a little but like that's I sort of realized that that's kind of my life that I have these high highs and these low lows and and all these things in between and that's sort of what the movie ended up being when I was writing it I was sort of going through this dark time and and it just sort of came out and became this sort of collection of all those different feelings do you um because you wrote the screenplay for it right Mm -hmm. and you directed it right so um and you've acted a lot Uh, is there one of them I mean I always think it's like I feel like I do one thing which is I write and you podcast too Mark I do podcast it's true thank you and you wear a great bow tie well but only the second best bow tie tonight because the chazan the canter was really it's true he had strong bow tie game yeah Um, but thank you for noticing sure it's Dale yeah Dale Dale was amazing Um, so um but I'm amazed at all the people in entertainment in, in, in movies and TV who do seem to do all of those different things. Which one do you think of as your most, which is, your, is yourself? I mean, I, I think it's taken me a, a little bit of a journey to get 
to that realization because it's like when I was younger, I like wrote a lot of short stories, but I was also kind of an actor and like wanted to do all that. And then I like wanted to be an actor. Um, after I graduated from the first part of college, I studied fashion design and my parents were like, no, um, why don't you go to film school? And so then I was like, because oh. that's where the bucks are. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, literally the thought was, why don't you learn how to support yourself behind the camera when you're not getting the jobs in front of it? Uh-huh. Um, and, um, and so when I got to film school, I sort of was like, oh, here I am. And these are my people. Mm-hmm. And this makes me feel the most like myself. And so I feel like directing kind of, it is all of the things in a way. Like you, you hire really good people who are really smart and really good at their jobs. But then you get to sort of guest star in their jobs with the production designer and the costume person and the cinematographer and the actors. And so because I am visual and I like words, but I like acting, you know, I guess getting to be the director does make me feel like me. So you said just a moment ago about how writing the movie felt to you, like sort of like replicating the way you experience the emotions, the high highs and the low lows. And here you are, you're sitting in front of a great cast, I mean, Kelsey Grammer, Kristen, like really amazing people. How do you begin to convey what is this very emotional, very intimate feeling that you had when you were sitting at home in front of a computer writing, be like, okay, well, this is the essence. Right. I mean, you know, I think it's different for every actor. And so like, like Kelsey Grammer, who is, uh, these were his words, but he said to me, I have so many wells. And so like before a scene would start, I'd be like, okay, so this is the scene we're talking about this or whatever. And he would just like start crying. And like, I wouldn't even really have to, I would literally, my job was to not push him further, but to be like, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Just hold it in a little bit longer. And like, wait till we're rolling the camera. And then he could just like do it over and over again because he's had a very dramatic life and he is so willing to remember those things and pull things up and it was like wow and then you know with with Kristen her process is very different she's a very optimistic positive human being and doesn't enjoy going dark and being angry and sad and so that was a different thing of like trying to to sort of work with her and sort of recognize those feelings and sort of you know get into those moments and live in them when she wanted to like because the thing is like she, everything she does is perfect so like you I, can do it once I have to say my wife and I are in like episode seven of the good place yeah. the first season and and I've seen her in the movie she's been in and I never really I think and maybe this is sexist to me or just superficial for a long time I was like she's pretty and she works and now I'm realizing she's actually an extraordinarily good actor oh no it's great I mean she's she can be really heartbreaking and to me I think what's so interesting is someone who who does sort of radiate that positivity that she does and then when she cries you're like oh god but nothing (laughs) is right with the world yeah and so yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely you grew up in Florida right yeah originally in Long Island and then I moved to Florida when I was eight where on Long Island uh Setauket near Stony Brook Yes. Does that have balance for you? Do you like, do you feel Well, it's not like she was like Rosalyn. And I was like, (laughs) we went to camp together. (laughs) So, so like, tell it, was your Florida childhood, you know, like Miami, super Jewish? No, not not at all. No. So I I lived on Long Island, like Jewish Mecca, uh, other than Israel, I suppose. And, um, and my dad was transferred to Lakeland, Florida, which is in between Tampa and Orlando when I was eight years old. Not Jewish Mecca. Uh, No, No. to the point where, and I, my family would always talk about this, but when we moved the Chamber of Commerce booklet said, churches 300, Jewish churches (laughs) one. Can I just say, I, you told this story on NPR with Sam Sanders and he responds being like, so what was your Jewish church like? Yeah. And I was like, we are booking her on this podcast. She needs some good podcasts. I mean, in their defense, they probably meant like Episcopalians, but that's okay. Right. 
<laughs> so what was your Jewish church My like? Jewish church was a lovely place. It was, I mean, a small, tiny community, you know, yeah. so my, my, my high school, which had 2,200 students, had five Jews. And wow. so, you know, so I really didn't have outside of my synagogue a Jewish identity, but within our tiny little tight community, it was fantastic. And, and I only had, I think it was six or seven people that were my age, but they were like family to me. And I was really big into USY. I did Kadima before USY, but like all the conventions and all the things and like, and that w- really... Anything to get out of Florida. Well, and away from my parents just for a weekend. And I have great parents, but like, you know, to be on your own in high school, is, right, that's totally. the dream. And, um, and so, you know, it was... It was an interesting thing because I felt very connected and very proud when I was there. But in my town, I felt like an outsider. And there was a lot of... uh, People just didn't really know what Judaism was. um, And and I faced a fair amount of maybe not direct anti-Semitism, but I would say maybe ignorant anti-Semitism. And it was something that I didn't even... It, it, it was like at school, I didn't, I never wore a Star of David to school because I didn't want people asking me about it because they would say weird things and they would ask weird questions. So, so one time I remember my dentist asked me how Hanukkah worked. And I was like, but you're a dentist. Like, you've been to school. Like, you're going to ask me how Hanukkah works. And like, like people, one time someone asked if my menorah burnt my Christmas tree. And like people would always, they, people could not get that over is, that I didn't have a Christmas tree. Like they truly like, but you don't have a Christmas, like they were af- personally offended that someone could not have a Christmas tree. I just and, love the dentist. You're like, you're a dentist. You're practically no, I Jewish. I, I mean, wrote, what's wrong I with wrote you? A, speaking of op-eds, but like I literally wrote an op-ed in the paper after that happened <laughs> because I was like, all right, everyone listen up here. Well, because Merry Christmas, the Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays thing was always a big thing. Titled How Hanukkah Works. Yeah. You've been, you know, you live in California, you're in Hollywood. Is it weird for you to be like among a lot of Jews still? Well, no, now it's amazing. And so like, so when I graduated from high school, I moved to New York. I went to FIT for a couple of years. And so all of a sudden I was like, not the Jewish girl. And it was just like, oh, here's another one. And like, (laughs) and so I suddenly felt at home and comfortable. And when I would go home, that's when I would really like, that's when I really realized it. Um, and, um, and now I've been in Los Angeles for 15 years and am surrounded by people who are only like me. And I'm, I'm going to Lakeland in, in a month and I'm actually feeling a bit of anxiety about it. Your parents it. are still there? No, they're here, but I have friends who live there who are I mean, like family. I mean, Lakeland but. should be claiming you as like their successful <laughs> daughter of Lakeland, right? Like you go off, you make movies, you direct movies. Like. I don't know. It's a lovely small town. Just not a lot of Jews there. But, um, and you know, but it's, it's nice to be around like-minded people. But at the same time, you know, I have reached out for more diversity on social media and whatnot, and that's always a process. Totally. Um, your charity. Yes. Would you tell us about it and why, what made you decide to start, to I start w- it? I would love to tell you about Please. it. Um, it's called Hilarity for Charity, um, and I started it uh, after my mom, Adele, was diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's when she was 55 years old. Holy cow. Um, and so it was during sort of this process that I was writing like father, sort of in that dark time, so that's how that got woven in there. Um, but, you know, I spent the first number of years of her diagnosis feeling just depressed and angry and just completely without any hope. And then um, my husband, who is a wonderful uh, human being, and I uh, and some friends through a variety show, and we had some comedians and, and musicians, Bruno Mars, performed, and we were like, oh, wait, maybe we could raise money for Alzheimer's. And so we created this 
organization sort of to help people like me who were feeling, I'm so young to be losing a parent to this disease. Um, and I was far from the youngest, of course. Um, and I felt very alone and I didn't know how to use my voice and I, didn't, I felt like I was the only one in that circumstance, which is far from the truth. And so we created this organization to give people a voice and now we, in, in our seven years, we've raised over $10 million and we've, we've created a, a grant program where we give away uh, free at-home care to people who can't afford it. We've uh, awarded over 240,000 hours of care to people who can't afford it. Um, we are, uh, invest in uh, brain health and prevention research because there's so much that, that we can do for our brains to keep ourselves healthy as we age. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's something that's given me a tremendous amount of hope where there was none for a long time. So you, how old were you when your mother was diagnosed? Um, I was just, just before I was 25. I, was it hard for you to find, like, did your friends understand what you were going through? Because no. like, you guys were like out of college, just becoming adults yourselves. Yeah, no, they, they didn't understand, and, and that's no fault of their own. It's just they hadn't experienced it. And the truth is, unless someone has really had a firsthand look at Alzheimer's, it is kind of like impossible to comprehend what it means to lose one's memory. And I think people have a sort of vision of it that is somewhat lighthearted, perhaps, from certain television shows and movies. Um, you lose your keys, you put your pants on the wrong way, and that's not the reality that I have faced and that my mom faces and that my dad as her caregiver faces every single day. Um, and so it was really hard and continues to be hard because there is a stigma that surrounds the disease. Many people don't want to talk about it. A young girl who had lost her father to Alzheimer's, who was in an Orthodox community, had shared her, her story on our website. Um, and her mother um, made us take it down because she was afraid that her daughter wouldn't find a match if they knew that Alzheimer's was in her family. It's like the worst thing I've ever heard. It was, <laughs> it was, it was, it was pretty upsetting. And so, you know, but this is, this is the fight that we're fighting with Alzheimer's is that people are so terrified of this disease because there are so few treatments and there is no cure, but there is hope and there are things that are happening. Like I said, there's brain health, there's prevention, there is so much. And Lauren, you wrote a really beautiful essay for that was published on Lenny about how this all started happening at a time when your life was going so well. Your career was just wonderful. You were working on projects. You were happily married. How do you navigate both the, the, the happy and the sad, like, like the way your movie did? How yeah. do you do that in real life? I mean, I think it's just a balance of like that probably everyone faces this happy and sad all the time. And for me, it's just been a practice of being like, it's okay to be sad, and this is the reality, and I, and I get exhausted by it, and I get really dark about it sometimes, but then I have great, great moments, and I think it's, it's finding that balance of knowing that, like, it's okay that over here I can be sad, but over here I can still be happy, and that sadness can be right alongside me. My mom, the sadness of what is happening to my mom is still part of me, but the goodness of what I've done with Hilarity for Charity, the hope that I found with that is also with me. And that's something that I feel very fortunate to have gotten to experience that. Um, but there can be both at the same time. You sometimes work with your husband. Yes. We're curious if he takes direction well. <laughs> um, it's nice of you, by the way, to give him work. It's very charitable. <laughs> that's right. He really needs work. He's really struggling. Uh, actually, 
yeah, I'm just really curious. Does he take, I mean, directing is, there are actors who take direction well, there are ones who yeah. don't. And some yeah. of them might take it well from some people and not from others. Right. But I'm curious. No, I mean, Seth is the m- most hardworking, talented, and I'm so unbiased, but s- just so incredible, uh, such an amazing human being. And so we, I mean, we've been together for almost 14 years, so we have a, a deep connection at this point, I guess. We know each other fairly well. And um, and so he's so supportive of me. So the answer is yes. He takes on set. He's an amazing collaborator. And like I was so lucky. I'm so lucky in life just that my husband does what I do and that we do have a great partnership and a respect for what the work that each other does. And, um, and you know, and so, yes, he takes direction on set very well and in life mildly well. And... Um, <laughs> And, you know, but, but, but we had a great time working together. He's, he's a real mensch. What, I'll just say one of the ongoing questions on our show is what's the, the feminine of mensch? And we have had people write in and suggest wench. And, uh, which gets shot down when we put it out there. Or is mensch just neuter at this point? Can it be used for women? It's, it's a problem because you one wants a word for women who are menches. I don't know. I, I like when, when someone says that I'm a mensch. I think so too. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but how do you feel about Jewess, the word? Jewess. I've never thought about it, but my initial reaction was no. Yes, that's exactly how yeah, I feel. I hadn't thought about it, but the, the gut was, Mark, no, you're I don't want to be breaking Mark is trying now. to bring it back. Yeah. And some women are like, yeah, like on Broad City, they're like, yeah, we're just two Jewesses. And I'm like, that works for you. Yeah, it does work for them in a way. But <laughs> it does, doesn't I, it? I, but to me, I feel like if I'm a Jewess, I should have like a long cape and like a, I don't know, and like a big sort J. Of yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Like a big gaudy J. <laughs> Star of David or something. Yeah. Uh, what's your next project? <laughs> what's your next, besides your charity, what's your next theatrical or creative project? I, you know, I, I don't know yet for sure. I'm writing a lot. I'm writing a, a female friendship movie. Um, my husband and I had a friend who moved in with us for a year with her two-and-a-half-year-old um, after a separation from her husband. I'm writing about that. You're like, but um, you can live here, but I'm going to write about this. I know. Next oh, no, she's thrilled about it. She's like, can I help? Let me right. pitch stories. Um, so I'm writing a lot. Nothing. I haven't. I love it. Let I me do committed. wacky things. So oh, no, it's good. Good. In the I script. have a whole email from her. Of like, remember this time? Remember when she did this? Remember when you had to change your diaper? Anyway. And if people want to know more about Hilarity for Charity. Hilarityforcharity.org. We're on all the social media things some form of hilarity for charity you'll find us hilarity for charity we're out there and and our last friday show uh, is on netflix and you can watch it seth rogan's hilarity for charity if you want to watch our variety show so people can watch like father on netflix and then go straight into the the variety show yes. next uh lauren miller rogan thank you so much for being our jew of the week thank you for having me thank you We are so excited to have with us tonight our Gentile, Jonathan Croft. He is the executive producer and co-showrunner on ABC's Blackish. He also worked on How I Met Your Mother and Happy Endings and spent five seasons as head writer on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Welcome, Jonathan. Yeah, come up. Come on up. Come on up. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Hey, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is like a, a late night show. Do the full Conan, baby. Yeah. So Hi. We have Hi. to just get this out of the way. Okay. First of all, I just want to say thank you for having me. This oh, is really God. cool. I'm really honored. Thank you, Tracy Shimano, for reaching out to me, a friend of mine who said, would you want to do this? And I was like, sure, I'll be a Gentile. And I feel like I have to, before we get started, a little bit because of the name Jonathan Groff, and I'm a television comedy writer in Los Angeles, there seems to be some suspicion. That was my first question. About my <laughs> Gentile bona fides. Is that what it is? 
Let me go through some things, okay? Yeah, okay. okay, break it down for us. My father uh, is an Episcopal priest, Ooh. so super waspy. <laughs> I'm married. Okay, thank you. Yeah, well, you're keeping score. Okay. My wife is a woman named uh, a tall, five foot ten, uh, freckled blonde woman named Martha Blakely Chowning. So, come on. You had us at Blakely. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, she actually goes by Blakely. Oh, so, so cool, going yeah. by your middle name. Exactly. She's like a soap opera name as a wife. And her mother was Chava Blackowitz. <laughs> Uh, what else? Oh, uh, this is big. Uh, I don't have a charity to promote at all, so... So you're a bad person. That seems pretty Gentile yeah. based on the theme tonight. <laughs> so you're just, you're just um, And like then a... I'll tell you a story about my mom when I was about 13 years old. I, I grew up in North Jersey, but, you know, we had this little, My dad had this little Episcopal church, and... Did, did you live in a rectory? I lived in a rectory. Wow. Exactly. Very wow. well, very well yeah. done. That's yes, crazy. if I was a Presbyterian, it would have been the manse. Is that right? Do yeah, Presbyterians have so. manses? I and... think so, yeah. Oh, wow. Are they bigger? Um, a man's No, like... the Episcopalians have more money, so the rectories are bigger, <laughs> generally speaking. Um, no, it was a rectory. It was a modest little church. And I, 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 you know, I had a few Jewish kids that I knew, but it was pretty, you know, and mostly it was actually sort of Sopranos land where I grew mm-hmm. up, like Lodi, New Jersey. And that, uh, um, so that was, gave me a good sense of healthy alienation, I think, enough to become a comedy writer, which is I grew up like this waspy kid around mostly Italian-Americans and stuff. But my mom, I remember, back to the Gentile thing, um, I asked her what a bagel was <laughs> and when I was about 12 or 13, and she said, uh, it's a little round, hard donut. You wouldn't like it. <laughs> She's like, we don't eat those. <laughs> it's the bread we don't eat on Sunday mornings. <laughs> exactly. No, okay, I, I, now that we have your, like, your lineage down, we have yes. to mention, like, you're not the only Jonathan Groff. No, no, I am not. Is no, that problematic for you? Uh, my father, who passed away last year, was very fond. Jonathan Groff is a kind of well-known, uh, wonderful Broadway actor. He's on Glee, and he's a mine hunter on... Why am I promoting his credits? <laughs> he should be talking about me. He's got enough going on. Um, but anyway, he's great. I actually got to meet him once, which was, which was really neat. Uh, but he, about... Um, uh, 15 years ago appeared out of nowhere and my manager took uh, great delight in uh, Google alerting me that uh, there was another Jonathan Groff. You were working for Conan at the time, probably, I was, right? I was, I was out here. I think it was, he, he sort of emerged about 10 or 12 years ago. You had a career already and this I had a career already. Sure I comes was, along. I, I still am uh, Jonathan Groff number one on IMDb. I'm going to say go. that. He's number two. He's Jonathan Drew Groff. I'm Jonathan Carr Groff. But um, my dad took great pleasure in saying, uh, I saw Jonathan Groff's name in the New York Times today. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Dad, I know. There's another Jonathan Groff. Like, but, yes, um, Dad, but they own the media, so there's nothing we could do. <laughs> Is the other Jonathan Groff Jewish? No, he's Is Jonathan it? Drew Groff. He's from the same part of the world that my family... I, actually, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing that he's not. My family, Groff, is like a smith, basically, in part of Lancaster County, New, uh, Pennsylvania. And he is from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's a pretty common surname. I think surname. he's actually a Mennonite. He might. Well, that's that, raised in a Men- I think, I'm not spreading it, rumors, but. That is, which if you think about it, are kind of weirdly Jewish-ish yes, in yes, a way. Yes, yes, like yes, yeah. the, the whole thing, like, you know, sort of middle European piety and all mm-hmm. that stuff. The beards, like, the hats. <laughs> the, the beards, well, the hats, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, it's sort of an extension of it on some level. But anyway, uh, he... Uh, <laughs> Sorry to he, make you keep talking about the No, other that's okay. Jonathan I'll talk about Jonathan Groff a whole lot. He's great. My favorite Jonathan Groff story was I, came, I had a show that got 
I met him, the first time I met him was after uh, Hamilton. I got to go backstage and meet him, and he had a, a bike helmet on, which I just thought was charming. He was going to bike. He's like the nicest guy. That's the other thing that kind of pissed me off is like, I'm known as like a really nice guy. Like if you ask comedy writer, oh yeah, John LeGrave, he's a really nice guy. And then like, he's five times nicer than me. <laughs> it's, it's really annoying. But um, well, it's a good opportunity for a mid-career turn. Now you could be like the jerk. Be like Jonathan Groff is mean me up, to people. Leo, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I am free to be an asshole. Now. I know, totally. Jonathan Groff. So my favorite story, one of my favorite Jonathan Groff stories is was I was in New York uh, for some show that I had was working on. I think it was Happy Endings, actually. I had gotten picked up, and I was in New York City for the upfronts, so the big television announcements and all that. And I was flying back, and the, that show was made by Sony Studios. Um, and Sony, very kindly, had sent a car to pick me up because um, we were flying in late. Um, returning from New York, and he and uh, uh, on the flight was Leah Michelle, who had co-starred with Jonathan Groff right. in Spring Awakenings, which was his big Broadway thing that made him famous. And I got she got down to baggage claim before I did, and there was a limo driver there, a car driver with Jonathan Groff, my <laughs> name on it, and she's arguing with him because she's friends with Jonathan Groff, saying like, "No, he's not coming out here for another ten days. I know for a fact. So you should just leave." And I'm like, "That's my car. Come on, man." Give me a break. Anyway. And, but you clear, you clear things up because your Twitter handle is at notthatgroff. It is at notthatgroff, yes. All right. So let's now, talk, now let's wait, talk which about is, this which gruff. Is, which is pretty good, but Liel's got at Liel. Right? Right. right? Yeah. Yes. How do you spell Liel? L-I-E-L. There was what, when you have, Well, that? when you have very few friends and you spend a lot of time in front of a computer and hanging with nerds, and it's like 2009 and someone's like, you want to be on Twitter? And you're like, yes, because I have nothing else going on. That's how you get that. Early adopter. Yeah, early adopter. You could have been like at God. Right. That, right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's, let's talk about this Jonathan Groff here with us tonight. How'd you get involved with Blackish? Uh, I had four failed pilots that I had been involved with in the spring of or winter, whatever, of uh, 2013, 2014, and had even then gone on to, to produce another pilot that was lovely that failed. So I really went 0 for 5, and I was a little bit licking my wounds, and I was in a deal at ABC Studios, and they said, you know, you're going to develop again, right? Another thing. I'm like, I guess. And I said, but can I just hide out on a show for a little while? And I met Kenya Barris, who created Blackish, and Larry Wilmore, who helped him get it on the air. He was uh, involved with the pilot and a bunch of the first episodes, actually. And um, I just said, yeah, can I work here a few days a week while I lick my wounds and figure out what I'm going to do? And then as I was working there, all of a sudden, Larry had gotten this opportunity to get a show on Comedy Central, the nightly uh, report, uh, nightly show, excuse me, with Larry Wilmore, and he was leaving. And Kenya, who had never run a show before, had been working in television and was brilliant, but he was like, would you want to run this with me and help me do it? And I was at first like, I don't know if I want to run another show. That's a lot of work, but I met Anthony and Tracy, and we did a few table reads and started shooting a couple episodes, and I liked the stories, and I was relating to it, and, you know, and I fell in love with it, and I said, please, I would love to stay. And so I've been there. You know, I didn't run the help run the show last year, but I've basically been running it pretty much or co-running it with Kenya and this year um, with uh, and Corey Nickerson was was helped to run it um, in seasons three and four. And then uh, this year, a guy named Kenny Smith is running it with me. So you come from from late night comedy, yes. which is sort of like the highest metabolism kind of yep. a writer, especially a comedy writer can have. So I'm imagining, you know, here you are going to a sitcom and maybe thinking, OK, well, this would be an opportunity to sort of 
more luxuriate and like put your your kind of like your craft into it and, and kind of like take a breather and then uh, Trump happens and Blackish becomes one of the most kind of like engaged political shows on TV. Did you have a moment in which you thought, I thought I was getting away from this. I thought I was just telling a story about a family in America and all of a sudden we're at the forefront. That's a that's a great question. I think I think I was ready for that challenge. I had worked on I mean, Conan's show was of the moment and and we sort of dabbled into politics a little bit, but it was pretty silly and pretty sketch oriented and Conan was never interested, I don't think, in being doing what Stephen Colbert does or John Stewart did or, you know, it's just not what his thing was he's could do that he's brilliant but he's wanted to sort of do this sketchier funny you know pure comedy thing and so I never really had the opportunity and even things like Scrubs which I worked on or or How I Met Your Mother or you know I'd really been in the world happy endings very much of like young 20 somethings and 30 somethings and their world and super funny shows and I was really proud of them super funny cast and great writers to work with so actually to do a family show was really refreshing and exciting. And that's one reason I got so energized by the opportunity. And then to follow it up and have a family show that was really about something. And then who knew? I mean, I will say even before Trump, we were in a world of reacting to the um, Ferguson, you know, or reacting to the um, um, shooting in Charleston, you know, the, the murders of the, of the churchgoers in Charleston, and, and, and trying to wrap our minds around what was happening in our country, even in advance of the rise of Trumpism. So, and then, so we, we did a wonderful episode that Kenya Barris wrote called Hope that was in our second season that was really more about a Ferguson, post-Ferguson, sort of the family watching television, waiting to see what the verdict was going to be in a, in a fictional trial, though we got Don Lemon actually to present the story as the episode went on uh, and they were watching a C- CNN. Um, so even pre-Trump, we were doing some stuff. But then once that happened, we really felt more and more like we need to engage. But, you know, it isn't what we do all the time. We really are just trying to tell this story of this family and how they're in the world and they're dealing with, you know, the basic DNA of the show is Kenny Barris looked around and he's a guy who grew up in Inglewood and Anthony Anderson grew up in Compton and both of them we're sort of saying, like, we've given our kids all of this. What have we lost by what we've gained? What, how are our kids not who we thought we are? Are we okay with that? Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and going down that road. When the show started, by the way, I, I, I wrote, I, I'm a huge fan of it. I wrote a piece saying that Blackish is the show I really wish the Jewish community would make because it's so incredibly honest about asking that question and I think we sort of grapple with but much less uh, or much less kind of upfront about it. Don't you think there are things that have done that though? I mean, imagine like just, I don't know, I would imagine. I don't know recently and yeah. I don't know in like massive popular Well, there was the culture. pilot of Blackish where there was like a bar mitzvah. Right. Class, that's right. So we had yeah, that. You did it for us. <laughs> that's true. Live actually, from the rectory. It's so funny. Yeah. I had nothing I mean, to do with that pilot. Yeah, the story, one of the storylines is that Junior, Marcus Scribner's character, is so kind of like assimilated really into this white school that, and his best friend is Zach and he wants to you know get he asks if he can his ass his dad uh junior does uh, can i get bar mitzvah and it's like what is this and they end up having an anthony anderson's character dre wants to end up having like sort of an african manhood initiation ritual to kind of counterbalance that and they end up having a bro mitzvah at the end of the pilot <laughs> which is great. really funny and it was great yeah that's what we need more jewish shows more so jewish thank shows. you i was actually sort of bar mitzvahed 
Um, this is where I give this up. This is always what happens. I know. <laughs> see, I'm blowing it. I'm blowing it, but I feel Go ahead, like, tell okay, us. Episcopal priest, Martha Blakely Chowning. Can I? Okay. Yeah. I had my friends in college, Jack Schwartzman, Jennifer Moses, Steve Beale, and Betsy Apple said, you never, it's a shame that you were never bar mitzvahed. And so they had a sort of honorary for my birthday, which came during <laughs> final exams freshman year. They had like an honorary bar mitzvah and they played like aging you know, relatives of mine who were, you know, <laughs> singing my praises and they made me give a little they speech. They made like a video reel for the they, It was live. We had like a party and they oh did like God. a live bar mitzvah. You guys really went wild in college, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's, it's a little silly to ask you this because you, you, you've probably met a few Jews in the comedy world. Yeah. Um, we're probably not your first Jews. But is there, you know, we always give the Gentile of the Week a chance to ask do you have any questions about Judaism that we can answer for you? I mean, one of sometimes there's just that thing you've always been a little shy about asking it. You don't know sure. if it's cool to ask. This is a safe space, like your writer's room, no doubt. Yes. Yeah. I mean, anything we can tell you? Well, I, I think an interesting question, I think it's because I grew up kind of where in the, you know, my dad was a clergyman and, and not a strictly religious background, but like we had the sort of comforting notion of heaven and an afterlife was presented to us as kids. So my grandpa passed away when I was five in 1967. Um, uh, oh, I just told how old I was. Can you edit that out? Um, <laughs> this is Hollywood. Um, he, you know, my parents were like, yeah, he's gone. You'll see him again. And he's in heaven. And like the notion of an afterlife is something that is, I think, for parents, um, although I didn't really say that to my kids when their grandparents passed because I've you know, I have my own questions and I whatever, but I do think that that is, what do you say, basically? I think what do parents say to kids? Um, because it's, I, as I understand it, not the biggest tenet of Judaism in most right. of its forms. We don't forms. have a hell per se. Right. We have a sort of the world to come. And in Torah, we have a Gehenna, which is actually just a valley in Israel where apparently souls rested, but we don't. I, I want to hear what Liel would answer. And then I want to ask Rabbi Nolan, who, by the way, is the most Jewish first name I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it Rabbi? Which, which he, uh, what they say, how do you answer? I think we should outsource it to Rabbi Should we just outsource it purely yeah, to Rabbi Nolan? Let's ask a Rabbi. Yeah, you want to come up here and tell us what, what do you, or? You thought you were done for Wait, the night. Josh is going to hook you up. We were going to name our kids Nolan, but we thought our son, we thought it was too Jewish. It would just mark him. The anti-Semites were <laughs> able to find him. First of all, I love standing in the back of the room. This is an absolute treat for me. Um, I always preface what I'm about to say. Judaism doesn't say anything because there are many, many Judaisms. And we've been blessed with a tradition of 3,000 years of rabbis who love to talk and write and uh, pontificate. So uh, there are... Rabbis like uh, mystical uh, Isaac Luria, the Ari, who does talk about an afterlife, who does talk about the soul and Gilgul and what happens to the soul immediately after death. And then there are, I'd say, the vast majority of rabbis who basically believe that the Torah closes the door on afterlife and wants us to focus on this life and perfecting this world, which is why there's only one illusion in the Torah itself to some other world, and that's in the story of Korach. Baruch Hashem. You could just Thank say you. that, you know, the afterlife's like Otisville prison. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Bobby can't get out, but the food is kosher. It's fine. It's not Zabar's. It's not Zabar's. It's not Zabar's. <laughs> My kid's idea of the afterlife comes from the children's book Dog Heaven, uh, because in Dog Heaven, uh, the squirrels are slow, and that's basically like that sort of... <laughs> They, they haven't lost any people, thank God, but that's where they think our dogs go. So, Jonathan Groff, 
if people were to start with one episode of Blackish, let's oh, say we have yeah. a listener who hasn't heard yeah. or hasn't, hasn't even heard of the show because they've been just in yeshiva studying and they're looking to go off the derech, off the path and do something secular and sinful, what episode would you start them with? You're asking me to choose, you know, which of my Which babies. of your children, I yeah. Know. Um, the pilot that Kenya wrote is wonderful, um, but I'd have to add, I don't know, I think the, the hope episode, which I, talk, I referenced earlier about police brutality, is a really beautiful, simply shot and well-told story of the family, and you get everybody's everybody's there. Lawrence Fishburne's there, and Jennifer Lewis, who plays the grandma, who's amazing, and and it's and we had Yara Shahidi still because it was the second season of the show, and it was just really well done and 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 very dramatic at places. But then, as comedy can do, like the the laughs are pretty good because they're breaking the tension. Yeah. Preacher's kid, Jonathan Groff, thank you for being our Dental of the oh, Week. My pleasure. This is great. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> So before we conclude the show, you know that we do Mazel Tovs. Our first Mazel Tov, we actually have one, which is to our producer, Joshua Cross, who joined us pretty much a year ago today. And we just want to give him a round of applause. He's taken us to new... Um, He's... I don't know if you've noticed, if you've listened to it, he's the reason we have tons of special episodes, like our... our, um, conversion episode, our Jews Across America episode. He's really taken us to the next level sonically, and we are very grateful. Absolutely. Um, and then, but but look, we we hand the Mazel Tov. So wait, I actually have a Mazel Tov. Do we, let's each do, do you have one? Do you have one? Basically, we hear that David Asher is becoming a bar mitzvah. We are invited, but we can't make it. It's out in California in a few weeks, and so we, we unfortunately can't make it back, but we're really excited for him. Mazel Tov, David Asher. And he has a great invitation. Mazel Tov. And then um, we have time for a few from the audience. And this is our last thing of the night. So if anyone, we have a microphone back there and a microphone there. Don't be shy. This is your chance to reach 12 million Jews. <laughs> no, just kidding. Not really every Jew in the world. Uh, that's how many Jews there are, more or less. Mazel Tov, sir, who, t- tell us your name and where you're from and who the Mazel Tov is for. Uh, Adam Diamond here from Los Angeles. And I'd like to give a Mazel Tov to my sister, Helen Geyer, who just won a Casting Society of America Award yesterday for a casting for the limited series Godless, which I've actually never seen. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Mazel Tov. You haven't seen it? He hasn't seen it. Should That's, see it. He should really see it. Yeah, he's some brother. I'm actually, I'm actually going. This is Tracy Shimano, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I was given a microphone. I have a few Mazel Tovs, and I'm going to make them really, really fast. The first Mazel Tov is to my husband, David Shimano. He started his own law firm a year ago, and he is the happiest I've ever seen him in the nearly 23 years, 24 years <laughs> that we've been married. I want to give. An additional mazel tov to Daniel Jannon, Jonathan Shimano, my babies who have not complained at all about the cold on their East Coast college campuses. And finally, no, not finally, I'd like to give a mazel tov to my parents, Sandy and Ira Goldstein, who just celebrated their 60th anniversary. And finally, I would like to give a mazel tov to Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, who have clearly, I have not missed an episode in three and a half years, and this is the best episode Aww. they have ever done. Thank you. So, mazel tov to you three. Hi, I'm Shira. I'm from L.A. Um, I am fangirling so hard right now. I'm really excited to see you guys in person. Um, I want to give a mazel tov to my husband because Super Proposal Sunday is our three-year um, engagement anniversary. anniversary so um, mazel tov. Wait, Sunday you'll have been engaged for three years? Well, it, it's our engagement anniversary. We've but been you're married, married for two years. Okay, <laughs> Did you okay. have to... <laughs> mazel tov. It still counts. 
I have a question. Did you have to watch the Super Bowl after? Like, was it during? It was, yes, I'll marry you. Does this mean I don't have to see the game? <laughs> and then he said yes. And then I said, yes, I'll definitely marry you. <laughs> as you know, as a fan of the show, Sid and I got engaged on Yom Kippur. So, you know, I'm all for, for theologically weird. I'm pretty weird. sure that's, like, illegal. <laughs> yeah, right. Any others? No, wow, no other Do you want to give a mazel tov to anyone, Jonathan? Oh, yeah, you know, I was afraid you were going to say that. Sure. Um... Um, I don't know. My, I'll just give a, a yes. I'll give a mazel tov to my two children um, who are working hard, uh, doing their very best in school and and in all their activities. That's Maddie, who's a first year in college, and my son Edwin, who is a sophomore in high school. Nice mazel yes. tov to them. I have. I want to wish a mazel tov to all my friends who are here. My cousin Nicole, um, Tammy, Kimberly. Kelsey, <laughs> I'm just so happy that to see them. It's so fun. And Danya, of course. Of course. It's our friends Gabby Berkner and Christopher Knoxon. Thank you so much for hanging with us. Thank you so us. much for being here. Oh, we have one more. It's Leah. Go for it. Hi, I'm Leah Phillips. Um, I'm going to say a mazel tov to my husband, Michael Phillips, because we just celebrated the 10th anniversary of his 21st birthday. <laughs> And it was a In lot Judaism, of that's actually a very important day, the 10th anniversary of your 21st birthday. And it was super fun, and we're obviously big fans and are so excited you guys are here. Happy birthday. And Happy- Leah, we have a mazel tov to you because your mother, Judy Paz, is part of what who made this event possible, and she really just did it so that you would come see her on a Friday night. Come home, yeah. <laughs> that you You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> well, thanks to all of you. We're so excited you came out tonight. Um, Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, like tonight. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross. That's cross with a K, jcross at tabletmag.com. And of course, you should wear and carry unorthodox too. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our show. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Jira Tolushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams over there in the promised land. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Nolan Leibovitz of Adat Shalom. We usually come to you from Argo Studios right there in the Flatiron District, but tonight, Adat Shalom in sunny Los Angeles. Shalom, friends. Shalom.